Amen. If you have your Bible with you, open up to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, and then we're going to go down into chapter 7, verse 1 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, into chapter 7, uh, verse 1. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, that's okay. You can open up to page 1330, 1330 in the Pew Bible there in front of you. And if you don't have your own copy of God's Word at all, if you need a Bible, you can take that one with you. And uh, we'd like for you to have it this morning if you don't have a Bible. And, uh, and so just let that be a gift from us to you. We want to make sure you've got a Bible to read. And so that one's all yours if you'd, if you'd like to have it. Uh, as you're opening up there, I want to say what a beautiful and wonderful Christmas season we've had. The First Baptist Church of Gadsden, we're kicking off the new year now. But uh, during our Advent season, we had a wonderful time and the Lord has blessed our church so tremendously in 2019. God has been so good to us and so kind to us. And I'm anxious to see what the Lord does in 2020. So uh, let's continue to be faithful to God. We know He'll be faithful to us. And we look forward to seeing how the Lord may bless our efforts in the coming year. If you have your Bibles open there, I want you to go and stand with me out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, our God, we ask you even now, would you open our hearts and our minds to be changed by your word? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever driven a car that's not aligned properly? I have. I fought that thing to stay on the road all the way from Louisville, Kentucky to Gadsden, Alabama. July be eight years ago this summer, Whitney and I moved here to Gadsden to be, for me to be the pastor here at First Baptist Church. And we had a six-month-old baby and two vehicles, a little car and Whitney's Jeep Liberty. And uh, that poor Jeep uh, had been the victim of seminary finances over uh, two or three years. And uh, plenty of lingering issues. In fact, the air conditioner wasn't working. 
there was a little oil leak in it, and so the oil was dripping out in the engine in such a way that it created just a really delightful aroma of burning oil. And so when you would turn the air on, uh, just to get the air to circulate, even though it wouldn't get cold, it would at least circulate, you got the hot burning oil smell blown into the Jeep. There was no cruise control. The thing was out of alignment, and so I wrestled that thing all the way from Louisville to Gadsden uh, on the way here. But, but that wasn't all that was going on. I was not the only occupant of the vehicle. Whitney and the baby, you, Emma Watts, were in uh, my car, and the air conditioner was working, and they were living the dream. I think Mumsy was in there, too. And me and two cats were in the Jeep. And so I'm, uh, you know, allergic to cats, and they're in there moaning and hollering. It's hot. And so we pull over, finally stop somewhere in Nashville, Chick-fil-A, to get some, uh, something to eat. And I told Whitney, I felt like the old Jerry Clower joke, you know, just shoot up here amongst us. One of us has got, so one of us has got to have some relief in this car. You know, it's, it's miserable to try to sit there and fight a car on the road. You know, we're used to being able to hop on the interstate, put it in cruise control, and uh, it just kind of goes straight when you're not messing with it. But, man, when you've got to fight a car to keep it in between the lines, it becomes a real burden. It's a difficulty. I, I don't think it's unlike what would happen if, if, if someone were to yoke two animals together for a task, but they weren't of comparable breed or comparable temperament or comparable strength eventually the stronger animal is going to unduly influence the weaker animal and, and you're not going to have straight rows things are going to get taken off line i'll put it in something most of us aren't farmers some of you probably have a background in that most of you who have farmed probably didn't do so with a yoke of oxen if i had to guess i'm certainly not going to ask you if you did or not uh th those of you who may have Maybe it's like this. Maybe it's like if you and your kid are trying to paddle a canoe together. Eventually, that thing's going in circles. Because only one of you is really paddling. You know, if you're trying to paddle on both sides kind of thing. This morning, I want us to look at three points from this text of Scripture. They're going to show us why and how we need to unhitch from the world. Why and how the world is going to be like is going to drag us when we hitch up to the world. We hitch up to unbelievers, the Scripture says. It's going to drag us in a direction we don't want to go. It's going to pull us off the line that we're trying to go in. Eventually, we're going to find ourselves not going where we need to go. Eventually, the canoe is going to go in circles. Eventually, the car is going to leave the highway. The roads are not going to look like we want them to look. Why should we unhitch from the world? What, what, why, why should we and how can we and why does it matter and what do we hitch up to instead? And so I want to just show you this morning three points from this text of Scripture to help you see this today. Here's the first point, simply, simply put. First point this morning is this, unhitch from the world. Unhitch from the world. Now we've not been to Corinth in a while. It's been since November since we traveled to Corinth together. So let me just briefly remind you of something that's going on. There, there is a big group of folks, I think, in the middle in Corinth. Have you ever been stuck in the middle in a situation? Many of us have, in one way or the other. Have you ever felt tugged in more than one direction? 
Anyone who's a parent and has a career or anyone who has this or that, we, we've all been tugged in different directions. We've all felt pulls in different directions. If, some of you might have felt that way over the holidays. You might have had some family drama. And you, you, you felt torn. You felt like you were in the middle of something. And I think there's a group of folks at Corinth who feel that way. Because on one side of them, they have this sort of faithful, solid, godly supporters of Paul. The, the people who see what's going on, they get it, they know this is the apostle, he's preaching the true gospel. The solid, mature believers at Corinth are on board with Paul, they're doing the right thing, they're there. And then on the other side of the church, you, you, you've got a group of folks, you've got a group of folks who are ungodly. In fact, I think Paul's going as far in this passage as to basically say there, there's a group of people who are in the church who are unbelievers, who are following what Paul will soon call super apostles, people who have come into Corinth in Paul's absence and begun preaching another gospel, and they're trying to create sort of an insurrection in the church at Corinth to kind of reject Paul's authority. I, I think they're preaching a sort of health, wealth, and prosperity gospel because Paul's often having to defend his suffering in this book, 2 Corinthians. And then right there in the middle, the big cushy middle, you've got a group of folks who are trying to make heads and tails of what's going on. Because many of them probably have friends, maybe even relatives in both groups. Trying to figure this out. And, and I think that's who Paul is speaking to primarily in this book. He's trying to make sure that the church stays in a godly direction, that they stay committed to the gospel, that they stay committed to the gospel he preaches because he's been giving authority by God and by Christ as an apostle to lead in the church at Corinth. And so here Paul is exhorting them, I would say, here in the middle of a passage about them opening their hearts toward him, and, and he's really trying hard to help them see how important it is for them to follow Christ faithfully and, and trying to help heal and restore their relationship. In the middle of this, he's helping them see you have to be careful what you're hitched up to but because you're, you're, you're associating with a group even inside the church who are proving themselves not to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's telling them, do not associate with unbelievers in a way that their mindset and their behavior will be influenced by them. And perhaps that's exactly the exhortation for you this morning as well. Do not associate with the world. Uh, you notice there's a plural here, unbelievers. Don't associate with the world, with, with groups of unbelievers in such a way that your attitude and your thoughts and your actions are ultimately influenced by them. Now what that doesn't mean is that we can't have friends who aren't Christians. And, and what that doesn't mean is that we ought not to be involved at some level or, not, or another in the world even when unbelievers are involved as well. What Paul is saying is where is your attitude and heart focused? Where is your influence coming from and so he uses a, a series of rhetorical questions to help drive home his point notice what he says he says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness he, he he's using these questions to help demonstrate how foolish it is for a christian to yoke itself to the world to yoke itself with unbelievers, to associate more with worldliness than with Christ and His church. What, what partnership is there 
with righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's the only time, from my knowledge, that that word Belial is used in the Bible, but it was a popular word among Jews in Paul's day, and it's another way to talk about the devil. It's in reference to his treachery. It almost literally means worthlessness. What accord has Christ with the devil, the treacherous devil, Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We know this passage pretty well. Almost all of you at some point or another in your life, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, almost all of us have quoted this verse at some point or another or said something like, We ought not to be unequally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We've we've used this as advice to our children. We've used this as advice to our friends. We talk about it all the time in, in different ways. And almost always when we talk about this verse, we talk about it in terms of romantic relationships. Or we talk about it in terms of business partnerships. Or, or we talk about it in terms of an, one individual with another individual. But ultimately, I, I really believe, while those things are certainly in view here, and, and I think that's good application for those things, most of us have sort of covered that already. Uh, m- most of us sort of have a grasp on what that means. We, we, we have to be careful not to put ourselves in situations where we cannot live out our Christian convictions in faithfulness to Jesus. We, we have to be willing to take a loss not to be unequally yoked in this way. However, this morning, I I want you to consider some of the more subtle ways that we yoke ourselves with unbelievers. Some of the the more insidious ways that we cozy up to the world. Some some of the ways we hitch ourselves up to the world in ways we don't understand. In fact, I, I want you to see how sometimes we are idolaters without even knowing it. What, what does he say here? We are the temple of the living God. And before that, what agreement has the temple of God with what? With idols. And we are the temple of the living God. And I think quite literally, Paul's saying they ought not go to worship idols here. But I, but I think the Bible has a broader understanding of idolatry than the mere going to a temple and bowing down in front of idols. And In fact, I, I think Paul sees this a uh, broader world of idolatry in, in, in other places in his writing, particularly in Acts 17. And, and I think we see it throughout the Old Testament as well, where, where, where idolatry is something more than just going to a temple and worshiping a false god. Idolatry can become a condition of our own heart. And every one of you in the room today, even though you would never dream of having household idols or a little god that you worship in your home, Every one of you today is tempted every day by idolatry. Many of us by the idol of the self. My favorite definition of idolatry that I heard from someone one time is that if you'll sin to get it or sin if you don't, you've got an idol on your hands. Now think about that for a moment. If you'll sin to get it or sin if you don't, it's an idol. 
And, and, and isn't that a good rubric to examine our lives with? Many of you are thinking about taking stock right now of what the last year and the last years of your life have looked like and what this next year might look like. What, 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 might I encourage you to add finding and eradicating the idols in your heart? Add that to your New Year's resolution list today. What do you idolize? And, and, and what do you find yourself acting like an unbeliever toward? Here's one thing I think we are due to talk about as, as we're on the cusp of an election year. Here we are, not just on the cusp, but on the cusp of an election and in an election year. As of this week, I, I think we've all got to recognize that politics has become an idol in our society. And this is true of believers and unbelievers. This is true of conservatives and liberals. This is true of everyone. We have an idol of politics in our culture. And, and it's a sinful way that I see believers unequally yoking themselves to the world and to unbelievers. And what I mean is this. Be careful. Be careful how you use worldly means in talking about politics. But be, be careful how you use worldly means in the way you talk about politics. Just because a behavior is normalized by talking heads on TV, and just because a way of speaking and a way of talking about other people created in God's image is normalized by the way we talk on social media and on the internet and through memes and everything else, just because that is normalized in the culture we live in does not mean it's okay for believers. It does not mean that we can talk about the others however we want because that's how our political party chooses to talk about the others. You are a Christian. You represent the Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful how you talk about politics. Be careful how you publicly endorse politics and politicians and candidates. And what I'm not saying is that Christians can't be vocal in their political affiliations. But what I am saying is that you need to make sure that it's clear that you primarily belong to Christ and not a political party. Ultimately, this text is asking you, where is your primary influence coming from? Are you primarily yoked to Jesus, or are you primarily yoked to something else? Have you unequally yoked yourself to something you have no business being hitched up to, or, or, or are you tied up to Jesus and, and yoked to Christ? Unhitch yourself from the world. But don't just do that. Second of all, we also must embrace God's promises. But we also must embrace God's promises. You see, we aren't just letting go of the world. We aren't just letting go of the world. We're embracing something better. We're grabbing on to something better. Taste and see that the Lord is, is good. Second half of verse 16 starts the, the text we're going to focus on. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and here Paul strings together about six different quotes from the Old Testament. We, we don't have time to kind of stretch out where all those are from, but he kind of puts these together to, to, to give us this sort of beautiful pastiche of, of, of a picture of the Old Testament teaching on letting go of worldliness and embracing God's promises. 
Listen, listen to these quotes. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Brothers and sisters, we are the temple of the living God. And those who are indwelled by God, by the Holy Spirit of God, those who are the temple of the living God, do not need a temple full of idols that we ourselves supply the voice of anyway. We are indwelled by God. We know God. We have God. God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Do you see the way that Paul is showing how we are recipients of the promises that God has made to his people for centuries and centuries and for generations and generations? God has promised, I will be your God, and you will be my people. He's promised that he will put them in their place and love them as his own. And do you see how through Christ you are a recipient of those promises? And he says, because of this, because of who you are, and because of whose you are, because you belong to me, it's because of that reason that you need to unhitch yourselves from the world and from the ungodly and from the unclean. Therefore, go out from their midst. Be separate from them. Touch no unclean thing. I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me. In other words, what Paul is telling the Corinthians is, why would you want to hitch up to the world? Why would you want to go to this health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Why would you want to just have things of the world with people of the world? What is there to gain? Things that don't satisfy? Drink that won't quench our thirst? Bread that leaves us hungry? Why not go to Christ, the river of living water, the bread of life who leaves us perfectly satisfied in Him? Do you see? Do you see how Satan blinds our eyes to the truth? Do you see the, the scheme of the devil? And the way that, that the devil puts scales over our eyes and understanding how much God loves us and cares for us. Because when we read the Bible, we so often, we're like our, our mother and father, we're like Adam and Eve. We so often focus on the prohibitions, but not the promises. We're, we're so worried about what we can't do. We're, we're so worried about the tree we can't eat from that we can't look behind us and see the forest of trees filled with good things. That God has given to us. We're focused on the one thing we can't do. And not the bounteous plenty that God has provided for us. You see, God doesn't save us to deprive us. God saves us so that we might find our joy and our satisfaction in the only place it can truly be found. In God. In Christ. At His right hand, the Bible says, are pleasures forevermore. The Bible says all the riches of God's wisdom are found in Christ. All of His blessings find their yes and amen in Jesus. God doesn't save us to deprive us. He saves us to demonstrate to us and to let us participate in and let us drink deeply from the beauty and joy of His own presence in our lives and our hearts. 
God's not saying unhitch from the world because I want you to sit at home and kick rocks. He's saying, I want you to unhitch from the world because I want you to know light and truth and beauty and goodness in me as it's meant to be known. God's asking you to wash your hands so you can come to a feast that He's laid at the table before you. Stop making mud pies in the yard when the Lord's ringing the dinner bell and the Lord's bidding you come home, come and eat. Come and be filled. God wants to give you all good things through Himself and through His Son. Why won't we let Him? And that leads us to our last point this morning. Live out holistic holiness. Live out holistic holiness. You see the beauty of this passage do do you see the way that paul is so consistent in the way he talks about sanctification do do, do you see how it's perfectly following the biblical pattern of sanctification chapter 7 verse 1 really i i would argue is a summary of all that's just been said 6 14 through 18 is summarized in chapter 7 verse 1 since we have these promises and boy do we Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, of flesh and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. If you were to go over to Colossians or one of the other letters and and read when Paul talks about sanctification, he talks about putting off and putting on. He, he, He talks about putting off the old self and sin and putting on the new self by the Spirit in Christ. Since we have these promises, since we have this new identity in Christ, since we are now children of God, and since God now dwells with us, since we are the very temple of God, and when we gather together, even if there are just two of us there in Christ's name, God is there with us. And and even then, in our own daily lives, we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Because of these promises, because we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. That is, those things which defile the flesh and those things which defile our spirits. Let's get rid of those things. Let's cleanse those things, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That doesn't mean being afraid of God. That means the big picture of what God is accomplishing in our hearts and lives means that we have to reorient our vision. We have to reorient our lives. We have to reorient our souls around the God who is making all things new and live all of our lives and all that we do out of reverence to Him. God becomes the big picture in all that we do. We we live in reverence, recognizing that we are bought by Christ's blood and we're clinging to His promises and we're cleansing ourselves in order that we might be holy. And so when we look at a passage like this, we have to be so careful. We have to walk so carefully. We have to keep this balance so well. Because obedience without promise... Trying to put off without putting on, right? Cleansing ourselves without putting on and and rooting it in our new identity in Christ leads to a joyless, dry legalism. It's all about do not taste, do not touch, but is of no power in the destruction of the flesh. 
on the flip side. Promise without obedience. Focusing only on the good things and the blessings and the joys of the gospel. Promise without obedience, without actually committing, without actually doing something. Enjoying all the taste of heaven without actually forsaking the world leads to a sort of lawlessness and antinomianism. And and there are some who practice this sort of religion. And in the end, God says, depart from me. I never knew you what? You workers of iniquity. Yet we have another option. We, we, We don't have to do obedience without promise. And we don't have to do promise without obedience. Instead, we trust God's promises and we cleanse ourselves by God's grace working hard to become more like Jesus knowing that it's his grace that leads us and sustains us and in the fear of God knowing who God is and what God has done for us fearing him and revering him and respecting him we grow in a holistic holiness and become more and more like God in the process this is what Jesus is doing for us so I ask you this question today Why burden yourself with the wrong yoke? Because don't think for a moment that the standards of the world are not awful as well. It may feel free, but what about the guilt? What about the shame? What about the fear? Has sin ever kept its promise to you? Has the world ever kept its promise to you? We can pursue the American dream all we want, but in the back of our minds, aren't we a little afraid? Doesn't the news unnerve us? Doesn't terrorism unnerve us? Aren't there things in the back of our mind that that linger, that haunt us? Why yoke yourself unequally when you could yoke yourself Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus told us what it's like to be yoked up to Him. It's not what you think. The legalists want us to believe that it's all dreary and miserable and terrible, and the devil certainly wants you to believe that, that it's so much more joyful if you could just run things yourself. But what did Jesus say? Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's not going to lord it over you. He loves you. He cares for you. And what does he say? You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why go to the world that's fading away when you can go to the kingdom that will never be shaken? Why go to sin that never satisfies when you can cling to Christ's righteousness by grace? Why go to worthless, impotent, devilish Belial when you can go to the loving, all-powerful and supreme Christ who waits for you, who says, come to me. Why be yoked to the world? Why be yoked to unbelievers, to defilement, to sin, when you can be yoked to Christ, whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light? Don't you see? Don't you see how simple the choice is? Don't you see how clear this is? Choose where you're hitched. Decide where you'll be yoked. I don't need more burden. I don't need more heartache. I don't need more toil. 
The choice is so simple for me. I'm going for only the easy yoke. Won't you join me? I want to offer an invitation this morning. If you've never put your trust and your faith in Jesus, you've heard His own words today. He stands with open arms waiting for you to cast off your burden to Him. And I believe if you'll turn to Him in faith, you will be saved. Repent of your sins. Trust and believe in Jesus. Second of all, second of all, you, you may be a Christian. You may say, Pastor, I just need some time to spend praying. This altar is open for you today. And finally, you may be looking for a church home. I'd love to talk to you today about what it means for you to be a member here at First Baptist Church. After this prayer, I want to invite you to come. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for the yoke that is easy. And though there's great sacrifice, though there's great difficulty in following Christ, we know nonetheless that ultimately our rest and our hope is found in you and you alone. And God, I pray if there's any here who has not found that, that you will draw them to yourself today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.